Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich, and my next guest is Lieutenant Colonel Jahara Frankie Matazek, and we will be discussing his recent book, Old and New Battle Spaces, Society, Military Power, and War, published by Lynn Reiner Publishers. Jahara Frankie Matazek is a lieutenant colonel and senior pilot in the U.S. Air Force and will be serving as a military professor at the United States Naval War College this fall of 2022. He earned his Ph.D. in political science from Northwestern University and was previously an associate professor in the Department of Military Strategic Studies and a senior fellow at the Homeland Defense Initiative at the United States Air Force Academy. He is also the fellowship director for the Irregular Warfare Initiative and has published over 70 articles on war and strategy in peer-reviewed journals, policy-relevant outlets, and edited volumes. The views expressed by Lieutenant Colonel Matzek are his own and do not reflect the official position of either the United States Naval War College, the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jahara Frankie Matizek, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah, we usually like to begin by uh, asking our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. And how did you come to write this uh, book? Uh, Yeah, so um, it was actually when I was in grad school at Northwestern. uh, I remember uh, it was probably a few months after Trump had been inaugurated. Uh, when I was at the gym and I was out seeing all the reports starting to come out on the news about everything that had gone on in terms of uh, the Russian trolls and things like that. And I uh, started texting my my buddy, who happens to be the co-author for this book, Budika J. Maha. And uh, we started kind of like discussing like kind of the implications of, you know, how much the like the Department of Defense spends on defense, and yet it seemed like the Russians maybe spent a few million dollars to cause a lot of, of damage against American democracy and, and civil society, and that kind of actually snowballed into like us texting for the next hour while I was working out about, wow, this is really, you know, this is something that isn't being discussed, and so we eventually wrote an article for um, The War Room, which is a publication for the U.S. Army War College, and we got such good feedback from that, that we eventually turned that into an article for parameter for parameters, which is the um, you know like the peer-reviewed journal for the U.S. Army. Uh, and from that point, that article, uh, we had a publisher approach us saying, like, "Do you want to say even more?" We're like, "Oh yeah, we have a lot more to say because we had to like we, we had cut it off really early." So uh, that kind of actually actually led us sort of thinking about like there are all these sort of battle spaces and, and way uh, the ways in which the war has kind of changed but has also stayed the same and uh, the most of the book was actually written when I was in Afghanistan at like 40,000 feet because I was actually deployed to Afghanistan in 2020 so me and my co-author were basically you know I'd, I'd fly I'd write a little bit while I was flying around Afghanistan and then I'd send them a draft and you know that was kind of the 
like the way we went about actually writing the book. Now, uh, explain the concept of battle spaces, which kind of takes up the the title of the book. Yeah, and th- this is what I actually think is great about um, my co-author and I. So I- I'm an Air Force pilot and officer, but my co-author, um, he actually uh, was a sergeant in the U.S. Army in the 82nd Airborne for about eight years. So he and I, and this is what I think actually makes this book, I think, even more was I think enjoyable for readers is the fact that he has a very ground mentality. I have a very air technology sort of perspective. And when we were kind of debating each other on, on battle spaces and, and, and battlefields and things like that, we kind of started, you know, agreed upon kind of like these fundamentals. And it's just basically, you know, a battle space is essentially uh, thinking about how, Competition's always going on, and war is a human activity. And so, what makes the the new battle space, I think, uh, different is the speed, intensity, and scale, and also just the amount of risk uh, that is involved with trying to target attack uh, a certain country, citizens, and civil society in ways that just wasn't possible in the pre-internet age. It's not to say that 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 people weren't doing this before, but it was just so much more difficult. Uh, a lot more uh, human capital intensive, a lot more risk. And that was kind of where we decided to, you know, to really take the conversation forward saying that a civil society and private individuals are able to be targeted and attacked in ways that just wasn't possible in the industrial age. Now, how does this relate to the overall relationship between war and complexity? I know this is actually a very growing field, uh, trying to relate like military action and strategy to complexity theory. Well, and and that was something that we also, you know, spent a lot of time, you know, d- discussing and ultimately it came down to the fact that the war is the unit of analysis in our book. And a lot of people don't do that. So, for example, a book that uh, I'd say was highly influential on our writing was actually um, a, a Peter Singer's Like War. But when you read through it, he's not really using war as a unit of analysis. He's, he's treating this whole thing as like th- this concept of war as a, n- a new phenomenon. And for us, we're like, no, no, the the nature of war has been constant over time. Uh, it's just the character keeps changing. And why does the character keep changing? It's because, at least from our point of view in the book, it's because of the way social sources of power uh, change due to technology and other things like that, and that alters the way you you conduct war. It's just the fact that now, in, in the digital internet age, if you will, the way you can wage war it just does not resemble what it used to because you can do it now without without violence or at least the perception of violence. Yeah, this distinction between the nature and character of war leads us to my next question, which is how does uh, the work of Karl von Clausewitz, the 19th century German or Prussian military theorist, help us to understand these uh, questions? And you do talk a little bit about him in the book. And I know he's kind of controversial because some people want to say he's irrelevant, but then other people want to say he is relevant. And if you have any comments on that question, go right ahead. Yeah, no, of course. No, I think the cool thing about about Clausewitz is that, you know, uh, he kind of was ignored after his death and his writings, and it wasn't until really around the World War II his writings kind of come back into vogue. Uh, but the reason why his, he's been so enduring is because, uh, you know, again, like I said before, the nature of war is consistent, but its character is always changing. And the 
the Grins model approach, uh, in, in our opinion, uh, facilitates the way we approach war, especially over time. And I think that's what, what I think our book is really getting at is we're kind of taking the Klaus Vietian model, but we're really distilling it back to like the social sources of what is causing the character of war to change. And that was something that I think maybe if, if Klaus Vietian had an extra 20 years of life, he may have, he may have actually, you know, realize what was going on in the 1800s throughout Europe was a lot of, you know, it wasn't so much the, oh, you know, they developed this new weapon. That's why war is changing now. It's the social sources that caused the development of that technology to lead to that and whether or not it was adopted or not. Yeah, you just mentioned your uh, GRINS approach, which uh, G-R-I-N-S, uh, all capitalized, which forms a major part of the uh, theoretical outline of the book, and maybe we could break it down. Now, the G stands for geopolitical context. So what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, uh, people too often forget that neighborhood matters in a geopolitical sense. The reason why we especially forget it in America is because we've been – very lucky to have two large moats known as the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. And we've had generally docile neighbors to the north, Canada, and to the south, Mexico. And so in one sense, um, geopolitical, the context is something that the average American and you know average policymaker doesn't really take into consideration because we don't have the same sort of histories that the average European country or average African country, Asian country has. And that, you know, in, in our opinion, that was one of the things that we thought uh, usually gets lost in a lot of analysis is that people aren't, are, people sometimes tend to forget the importance of, of the geopolitics and, and, and sort of, you know, the historical interactions between two states or more. Uh, and that was something that, you know, that, that was like a, a foundational thing to consider when you're uh, trying to look at, at the character of war and how it changed over time. Yes, and uh, we're definitely seeing that right now with the current war in Ukraine. And uh, the R stands for regime types. So uh, what do you mean by that? Uh, so by regime type, it, it's it's how power is organized. Uh, so, And again, that has an impact on how a country interacts with another country based on what's your regime type, what's the other regime type, uh, you know, during Clausewitz's time, uh, the thing that was um, important about about regime type was the fact that most of the monarchies viewed like the French Revolution and Napoleon as con- very dangerous to their regimes because their ideas were so disruptive to the status quo and the way power was organized in most of Europe. Yeah, now you also talk about ideas. That's the I. Now, uh, what do you mean by that? Well, and so, and, and that, you know, from the regime term, usually leads to ideas, which is, you know, uh, it informs the way people socially construct, like, their realities. Uh, and what's the greatest example of ideas? Uh, and I think, again, it goes back to the French Revolution, Napoleon. Uh, it's the idea of, of, of nationalism. What it meant to be... French, uh, these ideas of, of, of nationality were things that really didn't exist as, as, as much as they did after after Napoleon comes to power. And that idea of, oh, we're all French or we're all German or we're all British. Um, it, it actually, it, it contributed a lot to the way the military power was organized because people were willing to die for a cause or for their country in a way that just 
just wasn't a normal thing to do before then. And then the N stands for the nature of military organizations. Can you explain uh, that for our listeners? Yeah, so the uh, the nature of military organization, um, our take on that was it usually is reflective of society, uh, but also at the same time, uh, you know, a, a military a military organization can also uh, also reflect the state as well. So it can be like like a vice versa kind of a Genowitzian if you're into like that uh, that era of a sociological a military relations. But you know, what's the purpose of, of that military organization? Uh, and I think that's actually really important to also take into consideration time you're looking at a war or conflict or two countries because some militaries are externally oriented. Others have a internal mission uh, or, or they have both. So in America, we're obviously very lucky that uh, that the U.S. military is not used for a domestic policing actions. But if you live in places like Iran and China, the militaries there are dual-hatted and will do domestic policing actions as well. And why is that important? Well, that, that impacts the way that military is organized and the way it thinks about fighting, the way it's equipped and trained to fight. And then finally, we have uh, scientific knowledge. And I'm presuming this also includes uh, technology and weaponry. Yes, yes. Uh, and But I, I think that's also that's a part of the uh, uh, objective realities, I think, of a certain country or society is how open are they to scientific knowledge and how does that technology impact the country, the people, the economy, uh, and even the military, you know, because a, a lot of, you know, institutions are usually, usually set in their ways and it's really hard to get them to reform or improve when new technology comes out. And so that's, again, that's one of those things that, that we viewed as an important sort of element of you know trying to approach the analysis and the character of war because uh, if you don't understand how that country or society integrates or thinks about its scientific knowledge, it can actually act as as a restrict as a restriction on their ability to grow and adapt and innovate. Now, how can this approach best be applied in different situations? And we will get into several of the historical examples you give in the book. But if you could just give us like a basic outline of how it can be applied. Well, I actually think uh, we, we can apply it the, the right now to Ukraine because, as your listeners are probably very aware, we're having probably one of the largest wars on the European continent not seen since World War II, World War One, in terms of trench warfare, artillery duels, uh, and yet we're also seeing the marks of of the new character of war, which is the you know the use of drones, suicide munitions, and you know. Uh, the, the, the real-time ISR. Uh, but, you know, if, if I was to ap- apply the Grins approach, I would say in terms of a geopolitical context, uh, you have one country like Russia that is, has always had this uh, historical view and belief of having a buffer zone between itself and, and most of, of, of Western mainland Europe. And they have a right to feel that way because they have been invaded multiple times over the last few hundred years. Uh, and then on the other hand, in Ukraine, uh, you have a country that uh, increasingly uh, views itself as having always been an independent country. You know, and, and you know, I, and if you if you saw the jokes and memes online of like, you know, this is a picture of Kiev in 1000. Here's a picture of, of Moscow. And it's just, you know, it's just the empty forest, you know, uh, 
a lot of that for Ukraine, I think, was uh, in their case, yeah, there's a reason why they don't want to be a part of Russia anymore because they've been under the thumb of that empire uh, for just hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, and so when you, you know, when you break it down from that, that perspective, you know, you have two countries that, you know, have two assumptions of history. Uh, and in the case of Ukraine, they've come to the conclusion that their future does not involve being in the orbit of Moscow. But if you talk to someone in, in Moscow, they'll tell you that the future of Russia depends on, Belarus and Ukraine being within their sphere of interest. And, you know, these are two major geopolitical uh, assumptions coming head to head. And then if we go over to regime types, uh, obviously uh, Russia is has become increasingly authoritarian with Putin, you know, kind of having his own cult personality, whereas in in Ukraine, uh, essentially since 2013, 2014, the country has become less authoritarian, more democratic. Uh, and as we know, you know, when two countries uh, already don't have the same regime type, it's difficult for them to get along. So that adds another, you know, big point of, of friction. It was the fact that increasingly Ukraine was becoming a more uh, a viable alternative to living in Russia. Uh, and when it comes to uh, ideas, um, so this is the cool thing about my job in the Air Force. I had an opportunity to actually go to Ukraine back in August for about two weeks and uh, and talked to a lot of people in Ukraine. Uh, and, of course, they all kept telling me, the war is coming, war is coming. You don't realize it, American, but, but war is coming. And I thought it was actually um, really interesting when we talk about the power of ideas was uh, to the average, like, Ukrainian – you know, in one sense, they were like, you know, before 2014, we could have actually viewed ourselves being a part of Russia. But what happened in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbass, it really it accelerated the ideas of Ukrainian nationalism in a way that I think if Putin you know, in 2014 had, had actually made the original push like, like he tried making in 2022 in terms of trying to take Kiev and Odessa and all the, you know, all the major cities, he actually probably would have been more successful in 2014 than compared to now because the hyper Ukrainian nationalism that I saw when I was there in person really spoke volumes to how much the average Ukrainian did actually believe that, that Ukraine is a country. But when you go talk to Russians, they'll tell you being Ukrainians, a myth, it's a, it's a construct by the West, you know, the, you know, the Russians really did, uh, generate a lot of propaganda and and myth making of, of ideas of what they thought Ukraine was, and unfortunately, uh, their myth making did not <laughs> did not meet reality when they tried invading back in February twenty twenty two. And then in terms of, of of the nature of military organizations, again, because I happened to be in Ukraine uh, for a couple of weeks, I also got to meet a lot of the Ukrainian military, and I think this is an important point. I think that has actually made a huge difference in the current war is uh, I noticed when I was talking to the Ukrainian military, you know, if they were below the rank of Colonel, I was really impressed with how sort of the Western oriented, how sort of outside the box, you know, a lot of the people I would meet that were under the rank of Colonel really seemed to, to me to be more like a, a NATO military thinking and ideas and the way they thought about, about war. And yeah, we have a, we have a manual that was written by an old Soviet general for our Ukrainian military, but it's worthless when you get in contact with the Russians. Uh, and I think that's important because uh, 
when you would talk to them about like, well, what's it like to fight the Russians? They're like, well, the Russians, you know, still have their dumb sort of Soviet approach to war. Uh, and so when you think about the, the nature military organizations, when you, you can, you can see it right now, you can go on Twitter and, and look up the battles between, you know, like Ukrainians and Russians, and you're starting to see, you know, the, uh, like the nature military organizations, the, there was a lot of the rot in the Russian military. Uh, and just, the, it's like, they said they reformed, but a lot of it was just all a bunch of window dressing. And I mean, I was just talking to, uh, a Ukrainian fighter in Odessa that was telling me that about one of his buddies that was holding a river about how the Russians literally assaulted at the same point four days in a row at the same time every day. And it, the Russians had no chance, you know? So I, I think that, you know, the, the, uh, you know, when people keep saying that, you know, the, the reason why the Ukrainians are, are actually doing so well uh, because they're a free people fighting for their freedom I think that's a great a great example of sort of you know the nation built organizations using reflect society, you know those people are, are are actually really fighting for their freedom, whereas the Russian you know average Russian soldier, as far as we can tell, doesn't know why they're in Ukraine, and if they've been told why they're in Ukraine, they were told that they'd be welcomed, and they, that obviously didn't happen either. And then uh, finally, when it comes to like the scientific knowledge, again, we kept assuming that the Russians were you know you know, doing all these things with technology, making hypersonics and you know, doing all these sort of, you know, big advancements with the way, you know, like they're using weapons. But, uh, you know, but at this point, it's still, it feels like, like the war in 2020 between Azerbaijan and Armenia, where Azerbaijan really integrated the use of loitering munitions, drones, other ISR capabilities uh, to really, uh, route the Armenian army in a way that just many people assumed wouldn't have been possible, but it was the way in which uh, the, the Azerbaijan military integrated a lot of new technologies to really be a lot faster in the way they executed their war. And so uh, I, I think when you look at the Ukrainians, again, just like the way they've been able to sort of uh, innovate current technology, you know, like you can see all the videos again of them taking commercial off the shelf drones and doing all kinds of things and being super accurate, just dropping anti-tank rounds and mortars on, on Russian positions in a way that the Russians have just not adapted it, like their military. And it, it, it still does not seem like they've gotten anywhere near adapting as fast as, as, as the Ukrainians have. So, you know, giving you like a, like a Grimm's analysis right there, you can kind of see where this is kind of going. If you're looking at, you know, at the Russians, Ukrainians right now, but the character of war, what, what you're seeing right now is uh, besides the fact the Ukrainians basically have a, have a blank check from America and, and most of Europe in terms of arms and supplies, weapons and, and money, uh, their military is just adapting a lot faster than the Russian military. So every time it seems like the Russians may have turned the corner and adapting, the Ukrainians have already you know, outmaneuvered them already. And so, uh, when we say the character of war, it's still a combined arms conflict, uh, but in many ways, it's just the fact that Ukrainians are just adapting, evolving much faster. And you, when you use the Grins, the model approach, you can see, you can start actually breaking it down in a much more a methodical way. That you know, to average listener, you start thinking like, oh yeah, these are all things. You know, there's an actual there's actually a pattern you can actually put together. 
Yeah, I was going to actually ask you, like, what are the advantages of this approach? But I think uh, your explanation there kind of demonstrates that, whereas usually we, uh, a lot of times, the major approach is like, oh, we're just going to focus on technology. That's the key factor. But no, there's, I mean, it is a key factor, but it's in a larger context, so to speak. And yeah, and, and that's why we keep saying, you know, it's it's the way you're waging war. Well, that's the unit of analysis in our book. And as, you know, as I just kind of, you know, I laid up that, like the current, like Ukraine-Russia example, if you start actually looking at it more methodically through like those Grins lens, again, you start seeing, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, these important points that are all kind of contributing towards, yes, the Ukrainian character of war is just, it's just adapting faster and it's evolving faster than the Russian way. Uh, and I think that's it also is important for the, you know, for the armchair, the armchair generals on Twitter and other, you know, they're saying like, you know, the, you know, the information warfare of Ukraine is the reason why they're winning. You know, the, these people that are trying to pinpoint, you know, one specific the reason like, you know, you know, the the Turkish TB2 drones that the Ukrainians are using, this is the game here. This is why they're winning. And if you, you know, take a step back and use the Grins model approach, you can start realizing like, no, you, you, the Russians have armed drones as well. They're just not adapting them to the current character of war in in the Ukrainian war. And so whoever's adapting, evolving faster, it's usually a byproduct, again, of the geopolitical context, regime types, ideas, nature, military organizations, and scientific knowledge. You start looking at it more comprehensively, you can actually start looking at the Russian-Ukraine war in, in a more dispassionate way where doing a, a, a methodical analysis is just more, more coherent. Yeah, now we could probably uh, apply the Grins approach to certain conflicts in military history. And uh, we did touch on the French Revolution and how that even influenced uh, Clausewitz. How does the Grins approach help us to understand, say, World War One and World War Two better? Well, so the reason why it, again, it helps us is, um, so, so we listen, okay, I think we can go towards a World War I first. Uh, it's the fact that uh, a lot of, again, a lot of assumptions were made. The geopolitical context of World War One uh, was again these, you know, a lot of assumptions and beliefs with the way, you know, artillery and and machine guns and 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 the the belief in the spirit of the bayonet charge, you know, all the, you know, you know, the, the the spirit of the offensive, if you will, as they called it back then, um, and. Even looking at World War II, we start looking. You know, if you blend the two kind of together, you you start realizing that there were a lot of these assumptions that uh, p- that countries, leaders, and generals had about the way the war was going to be fought in both, and a lot of it had to do with assumptions of how the last war was fought or, or the last conflict was fought. Uh, and when again you start applying like the Grins model approach, uh, you start you, you can you can really I think. I distill down a couple things that I think happened in World War One, World War Two, which was first off uh, the power of force employment. You know, actually knowing how to do combined arms maneuver. Uh, the other uh, second most important thing was um, the battlefield uh, in in both conflicts just became so much more lethal in ways that just it it, it wasn't as lethal before the World War One and World War Two. And thirdly, uh, kind of the power of uh, of a fighting as a joint force kind of became more and more prominent, especially by the end of World War II, because in World War One you kind of had you know each 
person saying, you know, the Navy's really important or the Army's really important or the Air Force is really important. And by World War II, you basically see, especially uh, with the way that the, the Americans were fighting, the power of, of, of joint war fighting, actually, you know, the the integration of all domains, uh, you know, for combined arms maneuver and fighting in ways that the average uh, country in, in World War II just did not do that or they were too stuck in their old ways of fighting, which, again, gave a huge advantage to the Americans. Uh, not to mention the fact that, that that the U.S. was actually obviously outproducing the most countries by the end of World War II in terms of you know, in, industrial capacity, which, again, that has a huge impact on your ability to how are you going to organize, you know, like your military. Uh, and so when you start breaking it down and the, and the book, you know, it does much more detailed analysis of the French Revolution, World War I, and World War II, and even like the Korean War a little bit. Uh, but, you know, when you start looking through that lens of the Grins model, again, it allows you to take a step back and see how the character of war is changing over time. And again, you, you, you know, if, if you look at, you know, all those conflicts, you'll find writers that are going to say like, ah, oh, the advent of this technology really changed everything. Uh, although here's the asterisk to all that, of course, why does, you know, World War II comes to an end because of the use of one very important piece of technology, which is the nuclear weapon. And I think you, uh, I, I think you have a lot to say about that, right? I mean, because that's that that does actually change the way we start thinking about war in a way that uh, that it did that we did not really have to consider pre nineteen forty five. Yeah, that leads us to my next question: How did nuclear weapons affect this uh, Grins dynamic during the Cold War? Yeah, so uh, it it did actually change a lot of things because. Uh, before 1945, you could fight the war of attrition. You could fight for regime change. You could basically, you know, fight to annihilate your adversary. Uh, but with the advent of nuclear weapons and, you know, the ability to mutually destroy each other, you know, that's why they called it mad, right? Mutually assured destruction. Uh, it actually forced a lot of innovation the way countries had to fight especially nuclear armed powers uh and because it it constrained the way uh military and political leaders wanted to fight and wage wars because now a small conflict could actually turn into a nuclear conflict war that you know it when you start lobbying nukes at each other there like there is no winner like it doesn't matter if you had better if you had a a better a political objective than your adversary and you you know you had better lines of effort and you you know you know if you know you're better organized and blah 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 if 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 you you know cross the adversaries the red line and they had nuclear weapons they could launch a weapon at you and it, it it didn't it didn't matter anymore and so a lot of what what you saw going on in the Cold War, if you use the Grins model, was sort of like a retrenchment back to almost 1800s European politics. You know where there were lots of you know assumptions made about like who who, who had certain spheres of interest. You know how could you contest each other's uh, sphere of interest, uh, and that's where we start using the term of, of interstitial the warfare where the U the U S and the Soviet union during the cold war, 
uh, understood the rules of the game, you know, so that's, you know, that's the geopolitical context and also even the ideas, which was there were certain things you could do and certain things you could not do. And the way you competed had to be below the certain threshold because you knew each other's the red line for what it meant to actually start launching nukes or really escalating with a lot of firepower. And I think uh, the Cold War with the advent of nuclear weapons, I think, did actually really changed the way the U.S. fought. It changed the way all other countries fought. Uh, and I think you, you saw that most uh, evidently in, in the Korean War and, and even in the Vietnam War because, you know, you had a lot of military leaders, you know, who were quietly saying, well, if we just shot a nuke at, you know, at the North Koreans or, the, or North Vietnam, we could quickly end this conflict. And yet political leaders had to take a step back and say, if we do that, that, invites us to an opportunity to also, you know, escalate the war and possibly also have nuclear weapons shot at our troops or in our country. And so it, it really, it forced us to have to uh, fight in ways that I think uh, the average militaries weren't comfortable because you could not fight, you know, that, that ultimate, you know, total war like Sherman did in the civil war, basically burning his way to the South. You couldn't do that anymore. It's, it just wasn't, it wasn't possible anymore. And, oh, by the way, we had the United Nations. We had all these sort of international institutions that really, you know, constrained the way we thought about war, the way we waged war, human rights, norms, things like that, uh, that I think that's the power of ideas is that ideas aren't just internal. They also become external and international. Yeah. And this also led into proxy wars and political warfare as a key component of the Cold War grins context, right? Yeah. So what I think is great about the uh, about the term a political warfare, and this was something that George Kennan initially he coined it in his 1946 long telegram, but he later made it more explicit in 1948. Uh, and essentially to quote him, he essentially said that political warfare is the logical application of Clausewitz's doctrine in time of peace. Again, why is that important was the fact that, again, it forced uh, the U.S. and uh many of our allies to consider the way of, of having to fight a war, but do it in times of peace. And all too often we get caught in the binary lockstep of, is it war or peace? Well, there's some things you can and can't do if it's war and things you can and can't do if it's peace. And yet, as you saw during the cold war, the Soviet union was more willing to do more things closer, short of war. You know, that's where that term measures a short of war that they were more comfortable with, than the U.S. and most of Europe was, uh, and I think even 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 in 2022, uh, political warfare I think is something that you know we still struggle with because we want to compartmentalize military warfare and all other you know political warfare and other you know economic warfare of things like that. We want to compartmentalize because that's you know like the Department of Defense is not supposed to be doing. A political warfare, economic warfare. And yet if you go to Beijing and Moscow, you know, to them, it's all interlocking. It's all a part of like, like their, you know, it's all part of like their total warfare concepts. Yeah. In fact, uh, the common term used uh, to describe like the Russian approach uh, specifically is hybrid warfare in the past decade or so, especially since after the annexation of Crimea. Yeah. And, you know, it's actually funny that they actually mentioned like the hybrid warfare concept because, 
Um, if you talk, if if you, it, it, I say if you talk to average Russian, but if, if you actually read a lot of the writings by a lot of the Russians, they'll actually tell you that America and NATO started the hybrid war first. And we actually talk about that in our book a little bit. The fact that, like uh, in in Russia and also in China, they look at the way the you know the West operates. And I'm using that term very loosely, you know, uh, but. They'll tell you, no, 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 America, you started like the hybrid warfare first. You started having NGOs and you started believing in international law. You started believing in human rights. You started trying to impose these views of how the world is supposed to be. And you thought that in in Beijing and Moscow, we would just accept that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. In fact, in my own analysis of Russian hybrid warfare, I had to make this point clear that, yeah, from the Russian perspective, uh, they're the victims of hybrid warfare, not the West. I think the term they use is uh, new generation warfare. I believe that's one of the terms they use. Yeah, I think they got that from, I think, uh, Hoffman, I think, wrote that, I think, like 20, 30 years ago in like a Marine Corps gazette it was called like fifth generation warfare but then most of the russians also have like non-linear the warfare as well as a term yes non-linear uh, warfare that's also another term yeah uh hoffman uh he's the one who actually coined the term hybrid uh, warfare yeah. in around 2009 if i remember correctly was it? okay it was, okay and, and i know the chinese they obviously had that book they wrote in the late 1990s but there's two there's two kernels the unrestricted warfare which you know talked about using all instruments of national power to wage war. <laughs> yeah. Now we get to the uh, end of the Cold War and we get to what's commonly called the uni the unipolar moment where the United States is the undisputed superpower around the world. The Soviet Union has collapsed. China hasn't risen to the world status it has uh, today. So in many ways, the United States is not contested at all on the international stage. How did this affect uh, battle spaces and how can the Grins approach help us understand this time period? Well, so what I think actually, uh, what I think makes that whole, you know, especially the early 90s so important was the fact that uh, from a, a geopolitical perspective, you know, America had no had no adversary anymore. Like all the wars were over. Like and so in in was in, in in one essence, like America, you know, it, it's it's kind of like you know, um, if you remember like the Batman movie with like Heath Ledger, where you know the Joker basically tells the Batman, "What would you do without me?" You know, I, I think that's that's how America was basically in the 1990s. Was we were Batman without without a Joker to fight. So we tried to you know like we tried you know. Like we tried to find those wars and adversaries a little too hard uh, without taking into consideration sort of long-term a strategy. So really in the 1990s, you know, America was really adrift and rudderless without a strategy. And it was just sort of like playing the, the whack-a-mole with events that were happening either in Africa or the Balkans or elsewhere in the world because it was just sort of like, well – we have all these institutions and norms and laws and ideas of human rights, you know, that we built up during the cold war. And now I guess we have to actually use military force to stop it. And so, you know, it, you know, just looking from like a, you know, a 30,000 foot view of the grins, you know, a lot of that was just sort of like, well, it's just only logical that we do have to intervene and get involved and try to, I try to stop these things, even though during the cold war, you know, the U S or Soviet union were actually the cause and friction points of, 
of this. And yet what you see, what happened in Africa, you know, in West Africa and the Balkans, uh, what you see happening in the 1990s was the fact that the U.S. and the Soviet Union had been propping up a lot of states in name only, basically paper states, if you will, that only existed on paper. And we decided to, you know, in the 1990s, lend ourselves to the idea that these states should continue existing and having sovereignty and exist, you know, even though by all definitions of what it meant to be a state, the many of these states were failing to do the basics for their people. And so state failure and collapse in the 1990s and even to this present day is just seen as unacceptable. And yet we know, you know, pre-1945, state collapse was much more common and it just meant uh, when that happened, a, a neighboring country usually gobbled that up into their empire. Uh, and so I, I think that's an important point that people usually miss about the 1990s to the present day is the fact that when states collapsed, there was usually a, a strong man or a neighboring country that would just be like, okay, we're taking over. And they would you know, do what it would take to make it a state again. Uh, but unfortunately, when you look at our history books at, as to what it took to do stuff like that, uh, you can see it happening in Yemen. You can see it happening in Syria. Uh, it is it is brutal, nasty, and not nice. Uh, state formation and state making and the things that have to happen to, to make a state uh, is something that you know the international community has decided is unacceptable in, in the 21st century. And yet it was completely acceptable in the 1800s. <laughs> yeah, I often have to make that point sometimes when people get a little too nostalgic for the 90s, but it's always limited to pop culture. They're not talking about the geopolitics of the time. Well, yeah, and no, I mean, I, I, I like my favorite thing, like to tell people, uh, you know, you know, if they're undergrads or even grad students, how how would the American Civil War played out if UN peacekeepers had been deployed between the between the Mason Dixon line? Like, would the American Civil War ever have ended? There just would have been just a bunch of blue helmets, like, protecting the North and the South from each other? Like, what would have happened to America if that Civil War would have happened in, in, in the modern era? Like, peacekeepers would have been deployed. I mean, what would have happened? <laughs> yeah. There would have been no resolution. Yeah, we're kind of seeing that in uh, the Balkans, uh, and we'll get to that uh, in a bit. And, uh, of course, during this time in the 1990s, globalization and liberal internationalism were very important ideas to use the Grins approach that was underpinning a lot of uh, American foreign policy at this time. And you even speak about a kind of strategic narcissism that emerged out of this concept too. Can you explain this in further detail? Yeah. So these ideas are emerging uh, without any basis in reality, at least per our, you know, our perspective, uh, which was the fact that, you know, telling people in certain parts of the world that, well, this, this is human rights, this is international laws, this is the way you're supposed to govern, this is democracy, uh, you know, here's the playbook, you're going to do it, and it's going to work. Uh, there were lots of, uh, lots of assumptions made, m most tragically, especially with China, uh, especially with the global, uh, the globalization and, and this whole idea of a liberalism and, and economic, you know, growth, which was like, okay, if we treat China not as a pariah state, but as we treat them as a peer, we and we get we allow them entry into WTO and all these sort of international organizations and monetary funds, that if we if we help them economically liberalize 
they'll obviously politically liberalize because the richer you get, the more democracy you want and get, right? I mean, that was obvious, right? Duh. Uh, and now we look at 2022 and we start realizing, oh, the Chinese took advantage of us so, so easily, so well, and we kept ignoring it because they were getting rich, we were getting rich, and everyone was happy, and yet there was no political liberalization whatsoever in China. Uh, and uh, that's actually led us to throw out that term about a strategic a narcissism. And again, we're not the first first people to come up with it. Uh, it was actually originally uh, coined by Hans Morgenthau a few decades ago, and it kind of came back in vogue a couple years ago because of H.R. McMaster using it in a book to actually explicitly talk about China. And what is a strategic, a strategic narcissism? It's basically viewing the world structurally through a U.S. lens, which basically means assuming that future events depend on U.S. decisions and plans and that others will willingly do America's bidding. And why is that important is the fact that, again, uh, in the U.S. and the West more broadly generally, we just kept assuming that people would do the right thing, that if we gave them the playbook to politically and economically liberalized, they would just do it because, I mean, why wouldn't you do it, right? Uh, and, and and you had people, you know, obviously writing books from the 1990s about old and new wars in the Balkans where they're talking about, like, you know, people, you know, are waging war despite it being against their economic, the rational interests, right? And yet, you know, and I think that's the important thing about, about our Grin's approach is that you know, it actually takes that 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 assumption of of rationality out of the box of of assumption because uh, you start realizing that when you start looking, especially at the geopolitical context, regime ideas and uh, regime types and ideas, when you start looking at, at like the Russian state, you start realizing that they have created their own a strategic narcissism as well as to how they think their neighborhood is supposed to look and how the world's supposed to look. Now, from an American perspective, Western perspective, if you can at least appreciate that, you can at least more cogently understand why Russia thought it had to invade Ukraine. Now, of course, it doesn't justify or make it right what, what Putin did in Ukraine, but at least you can cogently understand their assumptions. Uh, and luckily, towards the end of the, the nature militarizations and scientific knowledge, like I said before, uh, we're very fortunate that Ukrainians seem to have have it have the edge against the Russians in that in that arena, and so they are adapting and evolving much faster with the way they wage war. So that's that's I think is the value of a strategic, a strategic narcissism is the fact that it forces you to have to you know start with a different set of assumptions and take your own rationality out of the equation to understand your your adversary uh, assumptions of what's rational and what's not. Yeah, you just mentioned uh, the old and war, uh, new wars concept, uh, which was developed by Mary Caldor, and that was kind of a major paradigm to try to understand what you call these wars of state failures in, say, Somalia, the Balkans, and West Africa. But of course, Mary Caldor's uh, perspective is kind of from that strategic narcissist perspective. It's from the Western perspective that, oh, we just need to send uh, peacekeepers in or build uh, a global uh, civil society. But the Grint's approach kind of seems to suggest it's more complicated than that to try to understand both the dynamics then and then even today. Yeah. And and that, you know, of course, we obviously are, are, are very aware of Mary Keller's book, also very aware of Samantha Powers, you know, the problem from hell. You know, these are kind of core text that you have to read if you want to understand, you know, 
ideas of genocide and and wars uh, interacting with sort of you know historical cultural feelings of you know between different ethnic and clans and things like that. Uh, but I think uh, again, when you you know unpack it more from geopolitical context and especially ideas, you can start getting yeah, obviously well past a strategic narcissism, but also realizing that uh, the, you know, these, you know, these people or these countries or tribes or, you know, the, the you know, these two power brokers, uh, they have to find a resolution. And, and unfortunately, uh, when political and diplomatic negotiations break down, warfare is typically, you know, the use of violence is your number one tool for negotiating anything. And that's something that I think our book was really trying to hammer home is the fact that uh, we tend to keep ignoring the fact that, you know, the use of violence and coercion is, you know, in the tool bag of any of any statesman, even though they may may or may not be elected. It is a tool in their in their bag. And that is a way to achieve certain political objectives, regardless of whether or not you tell them that's illegal or against human rights or international laws, et cetera, blah, 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 they will tell you, then stop me or do something about it. And nine times out of 10, we tell them to stop. Or if we try to do something about it, it's usually not, you know, it's not fully committed enough to actually stop that, that bad person from doing something that we tell them that is against international law. Yeah, that's certainly played out with uh, Putin with uh, the negotiations that broke down with Ukraine that led to the current conflict. And this also brings us back to Clausewitz with his very famous saying, war is but a continuation of politics by other means. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it's actually really crazy to think that, you know, so many people in the West genuinely did not think Putin would be dumb enough to invade Ukraine. and to a certain extent, if you look at it from Putin's perspective, he had gotten away with so much over the last 20 years. He actually, I think, honestly, I mean, he was just rolling the dice again in many ways because his assumptions was, you know, the West has been saying, we're going to, you know, we're going to stop you, you know, d- doing the finger wagging, like, don't do that. You're going to feel the pain. And, you know, as you start hearing the, like the stories leak out, you know, the, the average, per, you know, the a lot of political leadership in Moscow was actually surprised with the overwhelming response from the West and the U S because they expected us to basically roll over like we did in 2014 with like very, you know, subdued economic sanctions and, you know, Hey, we're going to, you know, you know, protest you at the, you know, at the UN, or we're going to write a really mean op-ed about you in the New York times, you know, it's going to hurt your feelings. And, you know, this is, you know, a great, a great example of, uh, of an authoritarian regime actually miscalculating the West. Uh, and, you know, it, it is it is crazy to think that we actually responded with the kind of force uh, across all instruments of national power, diplomatic, informational, military, economic, against uh, the Putin's invasion that I think it's 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 actually, it's, it's an important, like, return to the great power politics uh, that, that, you know, America and, and Western Europe and, and, and most of the international community 
basically viewed this as a as a actual red line and there would be actual uh, severe consequences. Hence, you see Sweden and Finland joining NATO. You've seen, you know, the Germans, you know, <laughs> reversing 50, 60 years of defense policy to basically double their budget. You're seeing the Swiss actually take a stand against a country for once. Like, I, I, I think this is it, it is almost the return of great power politics in a way that nobody expected or assumed. That if Russia had just continued its slow drip into the Donbass and Crimea, they could have continued doing this in their 10, 20 years, and they could have gotten actually much more territory. But uh, they, they they finally found like the magical red line that that the West always said they had, but but never actually followed through on. Now, with the regarding the revival of great power politics, like uh, like we saw in the 19th century, you actually give Prussia as a kind of a major example that we can study to try to understand like what's going on with Russia and China and other major powers that are emerging. Can you explain the relevance of Prussia's uh, rise as a power? Well, what so what what makes Prussia very different uh, from its 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 era? It was the fact that it basically had to fight its way into European politics and state making, uh, and it was one of the of the first uh, powers on the European continent to actually create professional armies to use meritocracy over aristocracy for the way they made uh, the militaries. They were one of the first uh, the militaries to actually th- think and create. A, a force structure and organize its military uh, around the, the combined arms. Uh, it was also one of the first countries to actually have a very pro-immigrant stance because they were dependent on immigrants for their economy and for also a universal conscription. Uh, they did a lot of things uh, to really make a modern uh, to, to make a modern military in a way that again. Many countries across Europe were basically, you know, saying like, oh, you're a royal. You get to be an officer and be in charge of, you know, of, of this regiment and things like that. Uh, and, of course, there's a reason why the, like, like there was always the joke about uh, Prussia's not a country. It's just the Prussian army happens to have a state, you know, and people don't also realize that, like, they were spent that the Prussian government was spending almost 80 percent of its of its of its government revenue on military. Uh, and so. Uh, the person that actually really brings Prussia like to its its greatest prominence was really Frederick the Great, who was really an enlightened despot. Though, eventually after his death, and you know, uh, along comes Napoleon, and and really sort of I think accelerates you know from a Grin's model approach the ideas of of nationhood, and even you know really made. A meritocracy and egalitarianism, uh, a core concept of his army, you know, uh, in, in ways that, you know, average, average European countries were just not able to compete anymore because, you know, he really put forth the, the power of ideas into fighting, whereas the Prussians did not have the power of ideas as much compared to Napoleon when he was leading the French armies across Europe. So in our current era of battle spaces, how does civil society kind of interact with battle spaces? And we're definitely seeing this with the Ukraine conflict uh, right now. So one of the core concepts of of our book is the fact that um, it is so much easier to attack a civil society in ways that just weren't possible in the industrial age. And again, that, you know, we talk about like the speed and scale and intensity and the ability to target, uh, you know, the, the, the greatest power of, of a country, say America or, or, or most 
Western European democracies and other democracies around the world is actually it's the power of a civil society. And if you're in Moscow or Beijing, if you want to have a, you know, a competent approach like to strategy and competition against the West and democracies, you need to stop trying to target the military. You need to start actually targeting the population, but not just the population. You want to target civil society. And that was something that uh, in our initial research, when we were putting this book together, we started realizing the ways in which uh, China and Russia were not uh, were not just targeting America, but they were targeting certain elements of civil society in a way to weaken and undermine democracy and the democratic process. So we thought it was really interesting the fact that in our research you, you you're finding that uh, the Moscow and Be- and, and eventually and, and obviously later on also Beijing, but. Uh, you know, the fact that, that Russia and China had an interest in covertly supporting and funding Black Lives Matter, but also Blue Lives Matter. Uh, they also had an interest in supporting the NRA, but also supporting environmental groups. Uh, and, and we started finding that it seemed like the Russians and Chinese uh, basically decided that it was better to uh, engage in information political uh, operations to basically go after divisive topics in the U.S. and and, and other countries across Europe to basically polarize uh, both elements of society to really fracture and break down the policymaking process and also break down uh, the democratic process and basically kind of cause extremism and hyperpolarization to which the point we argued is, you know, from a grip from a Grin's approach. Yeah, that's how you undermine American American military economic and military power is you you cause us to be so divided and 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 broken down in policy making that it doesn't matter that we have have one of the greatest militaries in the world if we don't have the elected leaders to decide how to wield it properly then it just kind of becomes a 800 billion dollar a year paperweight yeah it gets back to that concept a house divided against itself cannot stand and that kind of leads to the yep. weaponization of civil society correct yeah, it does, and uh, and I think uh, it's it, it's something that I don't think anyone ever had ever assumed would be possible to weaponize it. But like uh, again, another key point of our book is the fact that um, the average person who's listening to this right now doesn't realize it, but you actually are a combatant now. Uh, and the reason why you are a combatant now is because you live in the information age, and every day a a Russian or Chinese troll bot. Or, or human behind that that keyboard on the other side of the world is trying to influence you, shape you in ways that you don't realize. And your decision to share or not share a meme makes you part of that sort of socio-political information warfare that our book is trying to get people to realize is going on every second, every day. Uh, and everything is becoming weaponized. You're, you know, all this data, all, you know, the, you know, the, GPS tracking info. There is so much stuff available about the average American that, uh, with, you know, if there was a reason to, you know, to engage what, you know, what we describe as, as micro targeting, it is very easy for any adversary to essentially weaponize anything and everything. And we, we just find this really dangerous and really scary because it's something that, uh, you know, from like the Grins model approach, uh, our industrial age government and industrial age military has not adapted to this sort of informational change in the way you can, you know, attack other countries. And that's something that we actually are trying to 
get more attention about is the fact that if we don't adapt our institutions, you know, we're about to become the Prussians. <laughs> yeah, this almost adds a whole new meaning to uh, total war, uh, total war for the cyber age. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what is the impact that you think uh, artificial intelligence or AI will have on future battle spaces? Well, I mean, there's there's two ways to go about it. There is the AI is changing everything. It's the end of warfare. Whoever masters AI and puts it into their you know into their aircraft carriers and their bullets and guns and bots and drones, it's going to win the war. That there is that technologist perspective that people use because they have no understanding of what the character of war means. And when we introduce the Grins approach model, you start realizing like, well, if you if you have the correct understanding of your geopolitical context, you know, obviously we're a democracy, so the, we have we have imposed certain constraints on the way we're going to use AI. Uh, and then obviously there's ideas inter- internally, externally about, you know, is AI scary? You know, how much do we want to take humans out of the loop of warfare? And then really comes down to like, you know, the nature of military organization, scientific knowledge of how do we take this technology, adapt and innovate it in a way uh, that, again, isn't just solely, you know, we're just going to make AI weapons and that's it. And that's the end of warfare. Right. Uh, and I think if you use this model and you think about the character of warfare, you know, AI is not changing the nature of warfare. Uh, is it going to change the character of warfare? Yes, but it's going to change if you continue using reasonable assumptions of combined arms warfare and that AI is not the, the panacea to the next war. And I think that's, I, I think that's the most important takeaway from our book is that uh, thinking about AI is just another sort of tool in the way you do combined arms maneuver. And that if you add it to that coherently and you integrate it in ways, and then you obviously take it out to, you know, uh, you know, the national training center and other sort of, you know, uh, exercise areas, and you sort of see how can you use it and integrate it into combined arms maneuver, you can start seeing the value of AI uh, and, it helping you better fight, but it's not going to immediately win you every war. Those kinds of assumptions are what get you into really bad military defeats and quagmires. Yeah, so it's more about the integration of uh, artificial intelligence into the wider military framework rather than like everything becomes artificial intelligence it's uh, almost like a parallel of sorts to when tanks were introduced the best way to do it was to integrate it into the wider uh framework which is what the germans did for their victory in 1940 and and if you look at yeah and if you look at the way tanks evolved and and anti-tank weapon systems you can search and the way armor evolved through the 1940s you can see a cat and mouse game of you know oh we make this kind of special round okay we'll use this kind of armor and then it became a cat and mouse game of you know who can make a better armor or use a better armor piercing round or you know all these kinds of, of ways to kind of you know out innovate each other. But it wasn't like the tank just to like oh tanks here end of warfare you know which is what again you can find some writers saying that yeah and you kind of see some people make that assumption about the german tanks like the tiger and the panther but even the allies like the americans uh we had the pershing tank towards the end of the war and that was able to take out the panther in uh the battle of cologne and then even the soviets they had the uh the is uh, the of stalin tanks that were able to kind of take them out as uh, well so i mean there's no like lopsidedness it's, it's as you said a cat and mouse game 
Yeah, and if I remember correctly, I think they initially said at the beginning of the war, it, it they they just accepted that it would take about five Sherman tanks to take out one German one German Tiger. They just accepted it. It was like, yeah, we'll just make more we'll make more tanks than them. That's all. Yeah, in fact, uh, there was a common uh, joke by the Germans, like, yeah, it takes five tanks, five Shermans to knock out one of ours, but they always have that sixth one. <laughs> So uh, what is the future of grand strategy in your view? And especially how does NATO's approach to this question differ from, say, Russia and China? And certainly given the current conflict in Ukraine, that has some great relevance. Well, I think the way it changes it, I, I mean, first off, I think the best thing that ever could happen to the U.S. and NATO was was the Russian invasion of Ukraine because it was a wake up call. But I actually will take it back an extra six to eight months, I think. The fall of Afghanistan in August of 2021 was a really big wake-up call, um, and I I say it's a really big wake-up call because it made it it basically I think it made us basically realize that the 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 way we operated the last 20 years in the era of of global war and, te- and you know the global war and terrorism overseas contingency operations sort of this you know hunting these these violent non-state actors was really just was just a phase and that uh at the, that whole time china and russia were just basically uh, you know at uh, developing their economies their militaries things like that because they never took their their eye off the prize and so um there is the reason why i say that i think august was a big wake-up call with the fall of afghanistan was because uh, i think it, it it made a lot of people basically like reflect on the way we fought the assumptions of the narcissism of thinking that we could impose a democracy and all these sort of, you know, uh, these ideas of, of how to make a, a Western army in Afghanistan. It, it, it really, I think it shattered a lot of like of our illusions and assumptions about the fact that Afghanistan was going to be a certain way. And if we weren't willing to fight a certain way, we were never going to get our objectives there. And in fact, again, I actually happened to be in Ukraine when, when Afghanistan fell and it was, you know, it was also enlightening to see the average Ukrainian tell me to my face without even prompting anything, saying like, "Ukraine is on Afghanistan. We're going to fight." Uh, and you know, people saying things like, "Kiev is not Kabul." You know, we are not Afghanistan. We have something to fight for. Like, like we're going to fight. And I think that was a big wake up call. I think even for Ukraine, because the average Ukrainian kept telling me in August, like, "Don't abandon us." like you abandoned the Afghans, we're actually going to fight. I think that was actually a really enlightening perspective to see from the average Ukrainian telling me that when I was there is, uh, I, I think it, it was a big wake up call. And so I think that actually probably had a lot to do with the way we decided to react to Ukraine, because from all intents and purposes, we can tell that we knew what Putin was going to do. And we knew his battle plans essentially from, you know, from at least since November, December, so a couple months before his invasion. And so, you know, how, how does the, you know, how does this basically change everything? I think it, it finally gives the U S and NATO purpose for once. You know, if you want to talk about the unipolar moment of 1991, where the America basically has no purpose anymore, other than like, there's no adversary. Um, I think it, it's actually given the U S and NATO and, and all Western, Western democracies a purpose because, um, you can actually see the actual consequences of not not enforcing the international rules and systems and laws that we have. And so if you start accepting the fact that, you know, it's going to cost us, you know, in either 
a blood or treasure that the international s- system we have is actually worth defending, then we're going to actually have to have actual actionable policies against, you know, authoritarian co- countries that have decided to carve out, you know, their regional spheres of interest. And so, you know, if it, if you're U.S. and NATO and other Western democracies, you're looking at China and you're starting to, see, you know, you look at what they're doing in the South China Sea, making the fake, you know, making the fake islands, making lots of threats against Taiwan. You know, if you're the West, you look at this and you go, this is an this is another example of a country that has been just slowly testing the waters, quite literally, like the Russians did in most of Eastern Europe in terms of a salami slicing these countries and, you know, engaging these attacks just below the threshold of war, thinking that, you know, the international, the community is not going to do anything about it. I, I think that, that that gives the the West even more pause to consider really what it's going to take to have to defend Taiwan for the future, because that's the next boiling point. Again, if you use the Grinza model approach, you can see sort of, you know, in Beijing, they have their assumptions of regional hegemony. You know, they have their assumptions for uh, through the, Chinese uh, Communist Party lens of, you know, we're always supposed to reunify. And if we don't reunify, then, you know, our political party is a failure. You start to see, you know, through the Grins model lens approach, similarities between what they, you know, what's going on in Beijing and in the mind of a President Xi Jinping and similarities to Putin and what's going on in Russia in terms of the cult of personality, the authoritarianism, uh, you know, the the like the propagation of a domestic propaganda to make you believe and feel and think these things, you know, information warfare against people of Taiwan and around the world, trying to create the perception that Taiwan is a part of China. You know, the people of Taiwan are, are no different, you know, again, trying to, you know, much as, as Russia tried to Russify Ukraine, China's trying to Chinanize Taiwan and try to get the national the community to believe that, you know, there is no red line. It's a part of our country, et cetera, things like that. So I think, I, I think for uh, a lot of people in the West, I think this is this is a, a time to really start thinking about what's the next step, but also thinking about supply chain issues, uh, supply chain issues, and also just the way things start thinking again about the way China wants to wage war. You know, you know, and that's that whole unrestricted warfare that was written by those two uh, PLA. Colonels in 1998, 1999, about the way they're going to wage competition against the West. Do you have any uh, concluding thoughts? Uh, touching on anything we haven't uh, discussed? Um, no, I, I mean I think um, at this point, with the way like the war in Ukraine's going, I mean I think you know if if I'm Ukraine, you know your your number one priority, like but you know beyond just you know the, the maintaining like your sovereignty it's trying to keep the interest um in europe and u.s to keep to keep supporting the country so i i think you're going to uh see a lot of sort of um narratives and information coming out of ukraine again supporting their cause and trying to keep pro-ukraine interest in in european audiences and, and american audiences because obviously inflation is an issue now uh like the cost of supporting like Ukraine with a blank check is going to add up at some point and you're and I think that's going to be um, a tough thing for audiences in the West to kind of handle with inflation and taxes and things like that and I you know if if I'm NATO in the US I'm going to be wanting to be on the guard for you know 
Beijing and Moscow, you know, like their next era, you know, like, like their next wave of information political warfare is going to be trying to get citizens in the West agitated about all the money that's been spent on protecting Ukraine. And yet, if you look at the broader implications, if the U.S. and West did not respond to Ukraine, you know, we're almost putting ourselves back in the 1930s again. And, and there, there is an issue when status quo powers do not defend the status quo, up and coming challengers will keep keep pushing the line. And I think that's that's going to be one of those things that um, Western leaders are going to have to are going to have to be very open about the, you know, about the precipice of, of what's what's to come next. If, you know, if 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 the West isn't willing to actually like defend the current international order, China and or Russia are going to remake that international order. And we're not going to like the way that looks. Well, this has been a very fascinating discussion. We usually like to end by asking our guests, uh, what are you working on now? Oh my God, I'm working on way too many things. But uh, I'd say my my two two big lanes of effort right now is I'm, I'm looking at uh, a security force assistance. So basically like the way countries um, provide training, advising, assistance, and equipment to, uh, to partner uh, and foreign militaries and sort of the ways of doing it better. And, you know, if there's ways uh, to, you know, uh, adapt and evolve, you know, these processes that, have, that, you know, that are as old as like the Peloponnesian War, you know, basically sending assistance and aid and advisors to a foreign country to make their military better is something, you know, that has always been done. But, you know, people don't realize how a, a fundamentally important it is to the, the, like the waging of war. So that's kind of the one project I'm working on. The other big project I'm working on is um, defending the homeland. Because uh, I'm part of the of the Homeland Defense Institute, and uh, think about all the innovative ways that adversaries can attack um, the American homeland, um, uh, kinetically, but also non kinetically, to sort of influence and impact like the American way of life. And I think that's, um, I think that's also that's probably a, a tail end aspect of this book uh, in terms of the fact that we don't appreciate the fact that you know the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans no longer perform. Uh, they no longer afford the kind of protection that we were used to in the industrial age because it's just so much easier for a person in, in Beijing or Moscow to reach out and touch an American through the internet uh, and and cause a lot of, of damage uh, and and pain if 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 that's what they want to do to the average American and so I, I view that as another uh, big issue that we really have not uh, had a a good national discourse on. And we will have to end on that note. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jahara Frankie Matizek, uh, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Steve. It was, it was a great conversation. Thank, thank you. you.